Shauna Nequist is the author of Cold Tangerines, Bittersweet, Bread and Wine, Savor, and her latest book, Present Over Perfect. She joins us today on Let the Music Play podcast as we talk about her winding journey from exhaustion to peace, from isolation to connection, and from hustling and multitasking to presence. Hi, I'm Ashton Gustafson, and this is Let the Music Play. You know, so I think if you think of those two together, like twins, um, gluttony says, uh, I want it all. I want to eat everything, drink everything, experience everything, go everywhere, taste everything. Um, I want it all. And um, pride says, and I never need to rest. I never need to stop. There could never be too much for me or more than I can handle. So when you put those two together, um, you're just signing, you're signing yourself up to be over full, over fast, over committed, kind of over everything. Hey guys, Ashton Gustafson here and welcome to another episode of Let the Music Play. This is where we chat about what it looks like, what it feels like, and what it means to make music with your life, your relationships, and your career. I, um, short story, this weekend uh, a book came in the mail from Amazon and um, the title of it is called Present Over Perfect and I felt like I was reading my own story about 25% the way into this book and I thought... um, This is a voice that we need to hear from, and the listeners of Let the Music Play, I think, will totally resonate with. That being said, we have Shauna Nequist, um, the author of this new book, Present Over Perfect. You probably know her from Cold Tangerines, Bittersweet, Bread and Wine. Oh my gosh, Bread and Wine was unbelievable. Uh, She joins us here today. Shauna, thank you for your time and your generosity. Thank you for having me. Thanks for those are such kind words. Thank you. Well, um, you your your words and your inside have been such a beautiful light uh, within the walls of my home. My wife did uh, a season of bread and wine gatherings with her friends. Um, your and, and and the new book is just gold from start to finish. So uh, that being said, kudos on your work and and thank you for putting it into the world. Well, thank you. That means a lot. Thanks so much. Absolutely. So um, the new book, Present Over Perfect, and and I just want to get right into this. Um, you know, I think this is the journey of our generation is, is how do we get back centered in our lives? How do we separate ourselves from the noise and get back to the metaphorical rhythms and music that we all want to plug into? Um, but you share that this book is your winding journey And I love how you say this, from exhaustion to peace, from isolation to connection, from hustling and multitasking to presence. You want to just share us a brief snippet, the cliff notes of of that story uh, and take it from there. Yeah, you know, I found myself uh, almost four years ago. I had two little kids. I had a writing career that I loved and was very thankful for that had turned into a very busy speaking and traveling career, Um, a husband that I adore and good friends and a busy neighborhood and church life. And, um, and I realized kind of all at once that the words, the words that expressed my deeply held values were not really uh, present anywhere in my life. I wanted Mm -hmm. to be a person of great depth. 
of great spiritual connection, of peace. I wanted to have kind of an expansive, loving, warm presence to offer to the people who interacted with me. And I realized that what I offered to the people who interacted with me was a short temper, um, a long to-do list, an exhausted body and spirit. And Mm. I I was increasingly unable to be present in meaningful ways in the situations that mattered to me most. And so one of the ways you you write this in the book, and um, correct me if I'm saying it wrong, but I remember it because I think I underlined it. It was something like inner values were not aligning with like outer metrics. Was that right? Outside, there was, there was something beautiful there where you just said, I just found that there was this disconnect between who I was at the soul level and and really the action and the doing. You know, I guess one way to say it, your being was separated from your doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, and and I think the the outer metrics all looked good. If you were if you were only measuring hmm. from the outside, I was producing a totally, lot. Totally. It, it looked like everything was on track. We were this busy, happy family, and I was zipping around. And um, but on the inside, um, some I came too close to the edge of losing my ability to be contemplative and to be. Um, a person of depth and meaning. And I was becoming a person whose greatest, like the best thing I was offering the world was like, I get a lot of stuff done. Yeah. And that's really not that valuable when it comes right down to it. You were known as a doer. And so you, you owned that label. uh, And, and, and unfortunately some of us that are doers, sometimes the doing can become our boast. Um, And then the next corner is burnout. Absolutely. And I think I, I got as close to a full burnout as I ever want to get in my whole life. I, I built a life on being known as the most responsible girl in the room. And I think then I had to live with that. I had to live with being the most responsible girl in the room. And that was a heavy set of expectations to live with. Wow. Um, one of the things that you mirrored for me really well and, it, it's a little bit of a tough pill to swallow, but when I read it in words and it was there, I was like, oh, that's what that is. Um, you, you point back to gluttony and pride. Um, and I know in my story, I, I was the, you know, just the guy that was doing more and more, more and more. The plate was full, but I kept putting on more and more. I kept saying yes to everything. You you do a beautiful job in the book of bringing no back into our consistent vernacular. Um but you pointed to gluttony and pride in the book as the culprits behind the frantic and fulfilled life. Um, will you hold my hand a little bit on that and, and unpack really what you were getting at at the core of of pointing back to gluttony and pride? You know, so I think if you think of those two together like twins, um, gluttony says, uh, I want it all. I want to eat everything, drink everything, experience everything, go everywhere, taste everything. Um, I want it all. And um, pride says, and I never need to rest. I never need to stop. There could never be too much for me or more than I could handle. So when you put those two together, um, you're just sign- you're signing yourself up to be over full, over fast, over committed, kind of over everything because you're you're ruled by your appetites and your desire to prove your strength instead of being governed in a healthy way by your limitations, by the boundaries you've placed on the size of life that you want. There's something sort of rampant and voracious 
about the way pride and gluttony come together. Wow. That's one of the most opposite things we hear today in our society. Did you just say that the the limitations of, I can't remember, how did you just phrase that? Um, something about allowing your limitations to actually be what you need to lean into? I have found that uh, shaping my life around my imitation, my limitations, not my strengths, has brought a lot of health and healing into my life. And I'm, I'm learning that limitations are a more truthful guide than strengths usually are. Wow. That's a beautiful word right there. <laughs> um, and, and one of the metaphors you use in the book is this conversation that you had uh, about chairs. And I wanted you to share this story with our listeners because I thought it was beautiful um, but it was you and and another pastor and maybe a couple other pastors. You know, were talking about church growth and how the growth just kept happening. Um, but the pastor was like, "Well, but you you kept adding chairs." Would you kind of unpack that story a little bit? I'd love for our listeners to hear it. Sure. So we, you know, we were we were with our pastor at the time, and then uh, an older pastor. Um, and our pastor was just talking about like, this is, I don't know how this happened. Like it just, it blew up. Like it just, we have no idea. And, and the pastor said, well, it's okay. I mean, it's okay to say you had like a plan or you had an idea. Like it's okay to say you worked toward this or you built this, you know? And he kept saying, no, we, like, we just have no idea. It just, it just, we literally were as surprised as anyone. Um, and, and the pastor, the older pastor kind of kept pushing and kind of inching. And finally he said, well, you didn't do like absolutely nothing every week. You kept putting up more chairs. <laughs> um, and we all kind of looked at him like, of course we did. Like we're not crazy people. Of course we did. You know, of course we put out as many chairs as we could. Of yeah. course we, you know, and he, but what he was saying to us is, you know, you can't put up, X amount of chairs and then be surprised when they fill up. Um, and I think we had just all grown up in this sort of bigger is better, more is better, faster is better mentality as it related to church life or any other kind of life. And what he was demonstrating to us was you get to decide the size in that specific way. He's saying you get to decide the size of your church. If you stop putting up chairs, people will eventually get tired of sitting on the floor and find another church. Um, and if you keep putting up the chairs in your life in an unlimited way, making your life fuller and fuller and busier and busier, um, you're going to have to eventually take care of that many people sitting in all those chairs. Alternatively, you could say, I'm only putting up three this season, or I'm only putting up 20, or I'm taking some down for this year to focus on this, then I'll put more up the next year. But so much of this journey for me has been realizing sort of the agency and the authority that we have to decide um, a size and weight and dimension of life that works well for us instead of just naturally following the course of events and letting everything get bigger, bigger, bigger. Wow. So um, walk with me on this then for you as, as a real life metaphor um, of removing chairs, which would be um, basically saying no to things. So here you are a highly creative, highly productive uh, individual, but you're also a wife. You're also a mom. You also have friendships and relationships. Um, what what was that initial feeling like for you to to stop saying yes <laughs> to to almost everything and 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 bring back no into your life? 
did it fe- did you feel did it feel foreign was it foreign territory at the very beginning oh it was foreign and it was so difficult and i worried so much about it and i i did it in such an awkward way you know mm-hmm. it would instead of saying like no i'm sorry i can't do that i would say well you know i want to say yes um and and everything about me says yes to you as a person and our friendship because i love you and i'm there for you but in this particular instance i'm going to say no which i don't want you to feel like is a no like i don't love you no it's just like a like I would go on and on. And at the end of the conversation, I would realize people have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm being, I'm being absolutely ridiculous. And, and I would worry a lot. Like, um, are we okay? You know, I know I said, I said no to something that you wanted me to do. Are we all right? How, do we still have a friendship? Do we, you know, it was, I was a wreck. I was the worst at saying no. Mm. And I had to learn it. Like you have to learn anything slowly and, you know, in a fumbling way and getting better occasionally until it became something I, I understood how to do when I needed to do it. But you just start in, in like just a terrible, awkward, horrible way. And would you say that you're, you're kind of wrestling in that moment with the true self, false self, but eventually your true self in a very natural way can just say, no, I'm sorry, I I can't do that, but thank you. I mean, it, I, I would assume at some point after X amount of no's, there builds a little bit of rhythm into it where you go, hey, I'm going to center again on my limitations and realize I can't keep putting out more chairs and it becomes more natural the more we do it. Oh, absolutely. You know, we talk about it in our families being kind of muscle memory. Um, I'm building up a little muscle memory for what it means, how you say no and you don't freak out every time you do it. I'm, I'm getting a lot better at that, but it's just practice like anything. Yeah, Totally. That's good. Now you, um, you mentioned relearning in the book. Um, and, uh, it seems to be that this is a word that a lot of us that have hung around the church from a while. Uh, and you also had a beautiful word picture of like the first, uh, half of your life with one part of the pie, then bringing in the second part of the pie in the second half of the life. When you're like, you're beautifully, it sounds like you and your husband are stepping back into some of these practices that have just held so much um, beautiful space for humanity for thousands and thousands of years, and they've been so foreign to us in the last 50 years. Um, You mentioned centering prayer and the Lectio Divina and the prayer of examine. How are these practices um, starting to like rewire you at at the spiritual level, at the conscious level? Um, Because it's, it's, it's so different to what we've been exposed to, I feel like, from growing up in church and youth group, this and that. It's like this beautiful retreat back to stillness and solitude and silence and so forth. Well, you know, I think uh, just like every family, you know, you think your family's normal until you get married and then you realize how incredibly not normal the family <laughs> you grew up in is. Um, the, the same churches are just big families and they're good at some stuff and they're not good at other stuff. And the only danger is when you think yours is perfect and you never need to learn anything, but the wall, you know, beyond the walls of your own little tradition. And so, um, I haven't, uh, it, it has been so exciting to me to sort of, um, get to, learn um, from other traditions and to kind of enfold those practices and voices and writers and uh, into my own tradition. And I think for me, especially, you know, I'm, I have no shortage of theology about action and mission and what we do and, and how 
our lives and actions and choices matter, that my church is really good at that. Um, my faith tradition was less good at some of those deeply contemplative practices, and I needed them maybe more than the average person. So it's probably so much less a failing on the part of my church and totally just a, a gap in my own life and development. And so I needed to learn how to be still, how to be alone. I needed to learn that my value wasn't in my ability to get things done. And so um, practices like centering prayer and silent retreats have been um, absolutely life-changing for me uh, to, to develop a part of my faith experience that had been underdeveloped for a long time. Wow. You know, it's interesting to me it- when you when you go back to the beginning and you kind of relearn a bit that the tradition began with you were loved uh it's all going to be okay you're a human being before you're a human doing um it gives such a new set of eyes to see the world with and then when you see differently you then see where you can go and participate in the world differently does that make sense absolutely yes you know, I, I think one of the biggest things for me is getting back to centering at the soul level of, of who we are um, way before uh, what we do. Um, and, and I think that in your book, if there's anyone that's out there that's that's having this soul struggle of uh, the challenge between what I do and who I am, I, I think your words will um, set, set very, very well for them. Um, so, I mean, would you share maybe what silence, stillness, and solitude has been able to facilitate for you? Or, or maybe how are you carving out rhythms, be it daily, monthly, annually, to experience some of these things that are totally countercultural to what everyone else is doing? Well, you know, um, at first I thought uh, my my life didn't have any silence or stillness in it just because like, I'm a, like, you know, it's, I'm a busy American. I like to get stuff done. It's totally, it's, it's a weird coincidence that I just happened to be too busy for that stuff. And then as I started feeling the need to practice it, but also this really a pretty strong desire not to, uh, I realized, Oh, wait a minute. It might not be just a coincidence that I never have time to be truly still and silent. It might be that I'm really afraid of it. And it might be that when I, when I tiptoe into it, I find a very deep ocean of stuff I need to handle on the insides of my life. And so no wonder I avoid it. So I would say um, if you find yourself as a person who um, you're, you're trying for silence, you're trying for stillness, and you feel like I'm kind of working against myself here, like I, I might be really um, – avoiding this on a pretty deep level. I found that the practice of spiritual direction is really helpful because it's essentially like training wheels. It's someone to like sit with you and almost witness your silence, um, which sounds sort of ludicrous if you're a person who's good at doing it, but if you're as bad as I am at it, something like that can really help. Um, I would never, if, if we made plans to go to coffee, I would never not show up to meet you. But if I make plans to be silent, I will just fill it up with absolutely anything. So the appointment with a spiritual director and my, my, my responsible self shows up to be with that person, but the jokes on me, she's just there to make me be quiet, you know? Um, so that's a really helpful thing. Um, and I would also say, start really small. Um, I, I started doing centering prayer for about three minutes at a time and it felt like about a year and a half. And, um, so kind of start with your own limitations and your capacity, but 
I know now I hit a funny sort of tipping point um, maybe a year and a half ago where um, now if there's not enough silence in my life, I crave it. I need um, I need to reshape my day in order to get back to that grounding place. Um, I try to do a silent retreat at least once a year. I'd love to do two, but it just depends on the rest of my schedule and my kids. Um, but I need for there to be a couple moments of silence every day where I can be reminded of who God is. And, um, and essentially what I remind myself is that um, there's nothing I can do in the course of a day to earn more love. There's nothing I can do in the course of the day to squander or ruin his love for me. And so at that point, then I'm free, right? I work hard or play or rest or try something new and fail. But but my worth isn't on the line then every single day. And so for me to start the day in silence is one of the most important practices in my life. Beautiful. I love, uh, reminds me of Thomas Merton, one of his... One of my favorite quotes of his was, uh, if we have no silence, then God will not be heard in our music. Um, that's a good word. So um, this this book really is an invitation. I think it's invitation slash permission slip uh, slash maybe a little knock on the side of the head, uh, an awakening, if you will, Um back to a life of wonder, a life of mystery, a life of rhythm, a life of peace, a life of contentment. Um, who, who would you invite to um, read this book? I mean, is, is it is it uh, the, the mom that's frantically running back and forth between schools and practices and all this? Is it the entrepreneur that uh, is just go, go, go? Is it um, the person that just really can't find their way at the moment and feels like they're wandering in, in, in darkness? Is it D, all of the above? I mean, who would, who would you really say, hey, these words may, will, will enlighten you and will light up your life? You know, um, I guess I would say there's, if you have a regular practice of rest and play if you don't, if you're living totally according to your own deeply held values, and that, that feels very kind of integrated through your life, if you have a deep sense of your own worth um, on the planet without having to earn or hustle, then then do not read this book. This is not the book for you. Um, uh, but it's for the rest of us who who find ourselves wrung out by the lives we've created for ourselves, and specifically more so than my other books. Um, you know, bread and wine, obviously it's about, I don't think that the kitchen and the table is just for women, but a lot of people do. Um, bittersweet was a lot about, you know, infertility and miscarriage. And I understand why that, um, probably connects more with women. One of my deepest goals or prayers for this book is that it would find its way to people in ministry, both men and women, uh, but specifically to pastors, which, you know, just statistically, we know most, most pastors still are, are men. Um, because I think those the conversations about worth and work and ministry and what it means to give your best, but also not to give your best to your own self, your own soul, um, to the people that God has entrusted in to you in your home. I think that's a message that I'm really, I really am praying that that message gets to some of my pastor friends because I'm watching how hard they're working. They're pushing the way I was pushing for a long time. And I hope that this is a permission slip for them as well to, to live rich, connected lives, not just extremely productive ones. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, um, I know our listeners and myself, 
uh, and my wife included too. We are so grateful uh, for you and your insight and your work, the good you're putting into the world. Um, if our listeners want to follow you and learn more about your doing, um, about what you're doing, where would you direct them? Website, uh, social media, where should they go? Yeah, um, you can go to shaunanequist.com or presentoverperfect.com or on social media, um, it's sneequist on Instagram and Twitter and then just shaunanequist on Facebook. But Instagram is far and away my favorite. So if there's one place to connect, that's the one I would recommend. Beautiful, beautiful. And I would assume Present Over Perfect is available where all wonderful books are uh, sold across the country and of course, Amazon. Yes, all of the above. Thank you. Awesome. Well, uh, again, thank you uh, for your generosity and your time. Shauna, we are grateful for what you're doing. Um, I hope that this book does everything that you want it to do. And uh, we are behind you supporting what you're doing. Hope we cross paths down the road. Thank you so much. Thanks again for your really kind words about this. I really appreciate it. Thank Uh, you. Absolutely. Shauna, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. See you later. Bye. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Shauna as much as I did. If you did, make sure to share it with those you love and those you lead. Remember to share these episodes. You can find all of them in iTunes by searching Ashton Gustafson or Let the Music Play. And as we approach this week, may you pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebird sing, and be love. <laughs>